episode 20. He can do horrors. Boilers all books. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Ute Boy, podcasting from England. And I'm Lady Gwen in Boston. And today we have a dark, dark episode for you as we discuss Sir Robert Strong. But there's not a huge amount to talk about with Strong. It's not enough for a full episode anyway, so we've decided to include more horrors. Yes, so we're also going to discuss, in detail, the two people in the Robert Strong equation, Gregor Clegane and Kyburn. So we'll have a full analysis of both of those characters, where we'll be looking at, among other things, how George has written these two monsters very differently. So we'll give the lowdown on Gregor Clegane and then Kyburn before we look at Robert Strong and consider questions such as what is his significance to the plot and what is underneath the silent giant's helm? With readings, a pseudo-advertisement, and a decidedly grim undertone today, it's time to begin an episode full of horrors with a look at Gregor Clegane. A man who sees nothing has no use for his eyes. Cut them out and give them to your next outrider. Tell him you hope that four eyes might see better than two. And if not, the man after him will have six. So let's begin today with a look at Gregor Clegane before we analyze Kyburn and then speculate about Robert Strong. With Sander Clegane seemingly a brute in the story, at least early on with his killing of Micah, we're introduced to his elder brother Gregor midway through A Game of Thrones. And soon we feel differently about Sander as he's eclipsed, in more ways than one, by the true brute, the mountain that rides. Sir Gregor is not only the largest man in the Seven Kingdoms, but also the most fearsome. Okay, so let's start with some of the descriptions of Gregor. In Storm... Tyrion warns Oberyn about the mountain, and he says, He's almost eight feet tall and must weigh thirty stone, all of it muscle. He fights with a two-handed greatsword that needs only one hand to wield it. He has been known to cut men in half with a single blow. His armour is so heavy that no lesser man could bear the weight, let alone move in it. Yeah, so almost 8 feet tall and 30 stone of muscle. And to put that in perspective, Sir Gregor Clegane is as tall as that bear that Jamie and Brienne met at Harrenhal. Here's the quote. A roar turned Jamie back around. The bear was 8 feet tall. Gregor Clegane with a pelt, Jamie thought, though likely smarter. The beast did not have the reach the mountain had with that monster greatsword of his, though. So, a reminder in Clash that fighting the mountain would be somewhat like fighting a bear, yet Gregor has a longer reach. Often people of that height are quite slender, but in this sense Gregor is a true freak. He is all muscle, 30 stone, that's 420 pounds of serious power. And then you have to consider his armour, as Tyrion does. He wears very thick and heavy plate. No other man could even move in it. Given he wears chainmail and boiled leather underneath, with a solid helm, at times we get the impression 
that Sir Gregor is the unbeatable warrior in the Seven Kingdoms. And George must have been dead set on making Gregor the monster of the story, as he matched this near-unstoppable physique and freak warrior capabilities with one of the most monstrous personalities. In our Barristan episode, we took some time to recount the deeds of valor achieved by that great knight. With the mountain, there's a trail of destruction right through his story, so we thought here we'd recount the horrors of Sir Gregor Clegane. Yes, so let's go through Gregor's horrors. So in a Game of Thrones, we soon learn that Gregor has a history of brutality stretching far back into his early years, with the shocking story of Sandor and the Toy Knight. Sandor was six or seven years old, his brother five years older than him, so eleven or twelve, and it says he was already six feet tall and muscled like an ox. In spite of his fear of Gregor, Sandor borrowed his brother's toy knight, and the fact that it was a knight might indicate young Sandor had dreams of knighthood. But, unfortunately for Sandor, Gregor found him playing. Annoyed with Sandor for borrowing his toy, which he didn't even genuinely care about, Gregor proceeded to pick him up under his arm and shove the side of his face down in the burning coals of a brazier and hold him there while he screamed and screamed. In the end, it took three grown men to pull Gregor off Sander, and who knows how far he'd have gone if those men hadn't stopped him. And all of this to his own younger brother, someone whom he should have loved. Yeah, this was a moment of horror for Sandor, one which seems to have caused him some post-traumatic distress, deeply affected his personality, and ruined half of his face. Sandor tells Sansa... Only a man who's been burned knows what hell is truly like. And so at 11 or 12 years old, Gregor was already a monster to Sandor. And it's worth getting that graphic description of Sandor's face. So here it is. The left side of his face was a ruin. His ear had been burned away. There was nothing left but a hole. His eye was still good, but all around it was a twisted mass of scar, slick black flesh, hard as leather, pocked with craters and fissured by deep cracks that gleamed red and wet when he moved. Down by his jaw, you could see a hint of bone where the flesh had been sared away. So, a very distressing read so far, and we're only just scratching the surface here with Gregor. His age here seems to indicate that he was most probably born bad. The brute was later knighted, single-handedly bringing the institution of knighthood into disrepute, explaining Sandor's scorn towards knighthood. It's interesting that he was knighted by Prince Rhaegar. There's great honour in being knighted by someone well-known, so this would have been a top-class honour. Yeah, it really would, and I think that's a very interesting fact that we're given there. And so moving on, we have the sack of King's Landing. At just 17 years of age, serving under Tywin Lannister, and apparently under his orders, as seems to be common knowledge in Casterly Rock, Gregor scaled Mangra's holdfast, and once inside, killed the royal baby Aegon by dashing his head against a wall, and then raped Princess Elia Martell with her baby's blood still on his hands. He then went on to murder her as well. And that's a huge moment from Westeros' past, and one that came back to haunt Gregor. 
Tywin must obviously take some culpability, but again Gregor's brutality is absolutely shocking. And we imagine Elia was watching as a baby was murdered, helpless as anyone is against Sir Gregor. And it's worth pointing out the irony that he brutally murdered the wife and son of the man who gave him his knighthood not long before. Mm, so the next thing to mention is that some family members have come to suspicious ends. Ned has heard a lot about Gregor, and unsurprisingly, all of it is worrisome. Here's the quote. Ned seldom put much stock in gossip, but the things said of Sir Gregor were more than ominous. He was soon to be married for the third time, and one heard dark whisperings about the deaths of his first two wives. It was said that his keep was a grim place, where servants disappeared unaccountably, and even the dogs were afraid to enter the hall. And there had been a sister who had died young under queer circumstances, and the fire that had disfigured his brother, and the hunting accident that had killed their father. Gregor had inherited the keep, the gold, and the family estates. His younger brother Sander had left the same day to take service with the Lannisters as a sworn sword, and it was said that he had never returned, not even to visit. So, two dead wives, missing servants, a dead sister and father, and rumours of queer circumstances surrounding those deaths. It's a very sinister picture of Gregor here. He cuts a solitary figure, which would seem to be related to his psychopathic behaviour and perhaps the murder of people in his personal realm. And that possibly includes his own kin. And remember that kinslayers are deemed in Westeros to be the most accursed of people. So it's no wonder then that Sandor doesn't want to hang out with his big brother. Hmm, really no wonder. Okay, so now into the main story. Gregor soon leaves his mark as we hear from the hand's tourney that, quote, the most terrifying moment of the day came during Sir Gregor's second joust when his lance rode up and struck a young knight from the vale under the gorget with such force that it drove through his throat, killing him instantly. The youth fell not ten feet from where Sansa was seated. The point of Sir Gregor's lance had snapped off in his neck, and his life's blood flowed out in slow pulses, each weaker than the one before. Yeah, another really nasty death there, compounded by Sandor's comments that Gregor would have noticed Sir Hugh's neck protection was unfastened, and that Gregor's lance goes where Gregor wants it to go. Whether Gregor was taking orders to kill Sir Hugh here is a question for another time, but we should acknowledge that we think Gregor wasn't acting out of pure malice on this occasion. Still, the most terrifying moment of the day, and no surprise, Gregor's lance was the cause. Okay, and so next, a moment we're all familiar with. Sir Loras rides a mare in heat during the tourney of the hand, and Gregor's stallion becomes agitated and rears, contributing to him losing his joust with the Knight of the Flowers. Gregor calls for his sword, and then, quote, "...killed the horse with a single blow of such ferocity that it half-severed the animal's neck. Cheers turned to shrieks in a heartbeat. The stallion went to its knees, screaming as it died." And then he goes on to threaten Loras, and Sandor steps in, and the two brothers duke it out until King Robert calls an end to the madness. 
Again, we see the combination of Gregor's brute force and fiery temper. And if killing his mount seems detestable, what happened after the tourney was truly horrific. Yeah, we learn later in A Clash of Kings that, still upset by his tournament loss, Sir Gregor, alongside seven of his men, known as the Mountain's Men, headed off west and stopped by an inn. The innkeep served unacceptably thin beer and made the mistake of asking Sir Gregor how he'd fared in the lists. By this time, Gregor's men were inappropriately touching the innkeeper's 13-year-old daughter, and he asked Gregor, as an anointed knight, to stop them. Gregor proceeded to have the young girl brought in front of him and told the innkeep that his daughter was a whore now, throwing the man a silver coin. And then Sir Gregor ripped the dress off the young girl and raped her in front of her father before passing her to his men to do the same. And as his daughter was being raped, the innkeeper saw Raph murder his son. And when the men were all finished, this happened, and this is a quote from Chiswick. Sir tells the old man that he wants his change. The girl wasn't worth a silver, he says. And damned if that old man didn't fetch a fistful of coppers. Beg my lord's pardon and thank him for the custom. Yeah, this is truly despicable behaviour. Gang rape, murder, and at the root of it all seems to be the fact that Gregor was simply in a bad mood. But as horrifying as we find the mountain, there was one man who saw the use in having a resident giant psychopath, and that was Tywin Lannister. Gregor's grandfather had been the kennel master at Casterly Rock and saved Tytos from lions during a hunt, and so House Clegane was raised to a knightly house. This seems to have been the start of a mutually beneficial relationship between the Lannisters and their now bannermen, and it inspired some loyalty from the Clegane dogs. And one of Gregor's qualities, if you can call it that, for better or for worse, is his loyalty to Tywin. And in Gregor, Tywin has found the perfect attack dog. No other knight in the realm inspires such terror in our enemies, Tywin later says. And in game, we start to see why. Now, after Cat's seizure of Tyrion, Ned as Hand hears complaints of a large group of men terrorizing the Riverlands. There were reports of arson, cruelty, and murder, of men, women, and even suckling babes. These raids were said to be led by a man, quote, big as an ox he was, and a voice like stone breaking. So this is the start of a long and pervasive assault on the Riverlands. Gregor is attainted and stripped of lands and titles by Ned, and the stage is set for the War of the Five Kings. Ned cobbles together a force to bring down the mountain, who later become the Brotherhood Without Banners. It's worth noting that in Storm, we find out Tywin's plan was to draw Ned into the Riverlands and capture him, apparently to exchange him for the imp. But Ned couldn't go himself due to the leg injury he suffered in Jamie's ambush. Tywin later orders Gregor to set the Rivlands afire from the God's Eye to the Red Fork, bringing untold damage and slaughter upon the innocent small folk. Tywin might have been the player behind this, 
and Gregor might have had a large force to aid him, but make no mistake, this campaign wouldn't have been half as effective if it were not led by Gregor. This was pure terrorism, and terror is what Gregor Clegane does best. And before Tywin's order to unleash Sir Gregor and send him before us with his reavers, we see that he has another use for his beast. It's at the Battle of the Green Fork, and Gregor is at the head of the vanguard. The term vanguard is derived from the French avant-garde, which means out in front. And so Gregor was leading the Lannister troops. And here's what happened when he engaged the Stark troops. Gregor Clegane was the first to reach them, leading a wedge of armored veterans. Half the horses shied at the last second, breaking their charge before a row of spears. The others died, sharp steel points ripping through their chests. Tyrion saw a dozen men go down. The mountain stallion reared, lashing out with iron-shod hooves as a barbed spearhead raked across his neck. Maddened, the beast lunged into the ranks. Spears thrusted him from every side, but the shield wall broke beneath his weight. The northerners stumbled away from the animal's death throes. As his horse fell, snorting blood and biting with his last red breath, the mountain rose untouched, laying about him with his two-handed greatsword. Sir Gregor's size and ferocity was a great asset on the battlefield there. He broke through the enemy's line of spears and caused havoc. And once again, we see how difficult it is to kill this man. And soon after, we get a rare line from the big man himself. Yeah, feeling the army is being let down by the Lannister outriders, after being told they saw nothing, Gregor says... A man who sees nothing has no use for his eyes. Cut them out and give them to your next outrider. Tell him you hope that four eyes might see better than two, and if not, the man after him will have six. So we see Gregor's brand of punishment and intimidation is predictably severe. Yeah, not much of a surprise. And anyway, into Clash, we see more terror and burning from Gregor this time sacking Castle Darry and Stonehenge, the seat of House Bracken. We later learn from Lord John Bracken in Dance, when he's talking to Jamie, that your mountain stole my harvest and burned everything he could not carry off. He put my castle to the torch and raped one of my daughters. We also get a point-of-view look at Gregor and his men, who include reprobates such as Chiswick, Polliver, Dunson, and the Tickler when Arya is captured. Fortunately, Gregor doesn't figure out who Arya is, but we do see further atrocities. One of the captives is a pretty girl who is forced to have sex with five or six men every night until she breaks and hits one of them with a rock. It says, Sir Gregor made everyone watch while he took off her head with a sweep of his massive two-handed greatsword. Leave the body for the wolves, he commanded when the deed was done, handing the sword to his squire to be cleaned. Yeah, acts like this get the mountain a place on Arya's hit list. We see him respond to the tickler's sickening torture of people by standing motionless, watching and listening until the victim died. It seems that not only is the mountain made of stone, but he also has a heart of stone, completely cold-blooded and without any semblance of emotion. 
One woman even tells all in the agreement that they'll spare her daughter. But the day after her confession, Gregor just puts the woman's daughter to torture anyway, just in case she's missed something out. Yeah, Gregor is in some ways the perfect wartime subordinate. He's dutiful, obedient, and without fear. His advice to his captives at Harrenhal is obey, serve, and live. And perhaps this is a glimpse into his worldview, although you'd have to add a large list of needless atrocities to innocent people. Tywin later reflects that every lord has need of a beast from time to time. And of course, Tywin's a man who's long neglected factors such as humanity and the human cost of things. And on Tywin's orders, Gregor and his men take Harrenhal after Vargo Hote double-crosses the Lannisters. In Feast, hearing of Hote's demise, Jaime asks to look on his dead body. After a glance, he asks, where is the rest of him? And he notices the goat's lips have been sliced off along with his ears and most of his nose. And it's Shitmouth who confesses that Vargo has been cannibalized, with Raph giving the grisly details. One of the captives was always begging for food, so Sir said to give him roast goat. The cohort didn't have much meat on him, though. Sir took his hands and feet first, then his arms and legs. And Shitmouth explains that Gregor made sure all of the northern captives were forced to taste Vargo's flesh, and then the goat was fed to himself. It says, That horse'd had slobber when we fed him, and the grease had run down into that skinny beard of his. <sighs> Although revenge can sometimes be sweet, Jamie is appalled. He holds Vargo responsible for the loss of his hand, and had looked forward to his demise. But this tale of forced cannibalism was just too much for Jamie. It says somehow revenge had lost its savour. And he thinks, father, your dogs have both gone mad. So slicing a man up piece by piece and making him eat himself at the cursed seat of Harrenhal. More disgusting behaviour from Gregor, showing no humanity whatsoever and probably getting some kind of dark satisfaction from the torture and dehumanizing of Vargo Ho. It's worth mentioning that Vargo used to cut the feet off people to make sure they didn't run, so perhaps this was Gregor's own sense of poetic justice. Yeah, and with killing one of his own men for the crime of snoring, and smashing Pia's teeth for speaking when he wanted silence... That concludes our roundup of Gregor's atrocities. His arc draws in when he faces off against the vengeance-seeking Oberyn Martell at Tyrion's trial, which we'll have a reading of soon. And I think it's fair to say Gregor is without doubt one of the true monsters of this story. George often paints his characters as morally grey, yet Gregor, along with a handful of others like Ramsay, seem to lack this greyness. And the only time we really get any insight into why Gregor might be this way comes later in Feast. Kyburn says, Sir Gregor is overly accustomed to the poppy, I fear. His squire tells me that he is plagued by blinding headaches and oft quaffs the milk of the poppy as lesser men quaff ale. 
So, although not in any way redeeming, this might go some way to explaining why he's such an angry man and why he might murder someone for snoring, for example. These blinding headaches seemingly leading to him becoming a drug addict are probably linked to his gigantic size. Yeah, those headaches might be linked to a condition called gigantism, which we think Gregor probably suffers from. And it's really typical of George to add just a tiny bit of pathos to Gregor, although we can't say it's enough to garner too much sympathy. This is a man who's used his size and brutality to terrorise countless people. His crimes go far beyond the call of war or duty. He's a rapist, a child murderer and a torturer, among many other heinous acts. That said, he was a terribly effective weapon of war, harnessed by House Lannister. Tywin used his beast to great effect, and Gregor was one of the best and most feared warriors in the kingdoms. He caused absolute havoc and terror in the Riverlands, inflicting severe damage almost to the entire area, and sometimes it seemed that no man could kill him. Yeah, there certainly seemed to be an air of invincibility about him, which makes what happened next all the more intriguing. Tyrion's trial saw Cersei call on Gregor as champion of the throne following Joffrey's death and step in Oberyn Martell, wanting Gregor Clegane to suffer for the crimes against his sister Ilya and her children. He agrees to be Tyrion's champion, setting up one of the best scenes of the series. And we've described just how big Gregor was, and so this seemed like a really terrible mismatch. When Oberyn tells Tyrion he plans to fight the brute with a wooden spear, the imp and the reader also feel quite uneasy. However, Oberyn knows how to fight and reveals that However thick his plate, there will be gaps at the joints, inside the elbow and knee, beneath the arms. I will find a place to tickle him, I promise you. And this is revealed as Tyrion notices Oberyn's spear point might be poisoned. So the reader is set up for quite a show and George didn't disappoint. Oberyn used his smaller size to his advantage arming lightly in order to remain quick on his feet. Gregor, used to winning with force, lumbered around in heavy plate armor and struggled to get close to Oberyn, who kept the big man at a distance with his long spear. It's noted that Gregor had limited vision with the small slit on his helm, something Oberyn took advantage of as he wore his opponent down. Gregor's aforementioned headaches were also a weakness here as Oberyn shouted loudly about the murder of Elia and her children. It seems that the noise really bothered Gregor, perhaps affecting his performance as he tells Oberyn to be quiet and shut up and you talk too much, you make my head hurt. So, after tickling Gregor under the arm and behind the knee, Oberyn vaulted over Gregor, pinning him to the ground with his Dornish spear stabbed through his belly. However, just as we thought Oberyn had won, his true weakness was revealed. He had the mountain down and dying, yet his thirst for revenge led him to complacency, and we all know what happened next. 
It was rather fitting that the mortally wounded Gregor's last act here was one of brutal horror, putting steel fingers into Oberon's eyes, splintering his teeth, and then smashing Oberon's head. Yeah, it was kind of fitting, and even with a spear through him, Gregor Clegane was still capable of that kind of brutality. And we'll follow up what happened to Gregor later on with the effects of Oberyn's poison and the spear wounds. Things were extremely painful for him after the trial. Pycelle treats him at first, noting his convulsions are so violent that I have to gag him to prevent him from biting off his tongue. And we hear of his howls heard ringing from the maester's chambers. Well, Oberyn's death might have been tragic, However, he did, in a way, fulfill his destiny, claiming vengeance by bringing the big man down. As Doran later points out, If ever a man deserved to die screaming, it was Gregor Clegane. He butchered my good sister, smashed her babe's head against a wall. I only pray that now he is burning in some hell and that Ilya and her children are at peace. This is the justice that Doran has hungered for. I am glad that I have lived long enough to taste it. Okay, so that's the story of the mountain. And we'll pick up the overlap with Robert Strong later. But we can see that already Gregor was a character of great horror even before certain experiments. Next, we're going to talk all about the shamed ex-maester, Kyburn. But first, here's that reading that we mentioned. Here's Prince Oberyn of Dawn forcing Gregor to confess his crimes against his sister Elia before things take an unexpected and gruesome twist. Oberyn Martell vaulted over the mountain. Four feet of broken spear jutted from Clegane's belly as Prince Oberyn rolled, rose, and dusted himself off. He tossed aside the splintered spear and claimed his foe's greatsword. If you die before you say her name, sir... I will hunt you through all seven hells, he promised. Sir Gregor tried to rise. The broken spear had gone through him and was pinning him to the ground. He wrapped both hands about the shaft, grunting, but could not pull it out. Beneath him was a spreading pool of red. Prince Oberyn moved closer. Say the name. He put a foot on the mountain's chest and raised the greatsword with both hands. Whether he intended to hack off Gregor's head or shove the point through his eye slit, was something Tyrion would never know. Clegane's hand shot up and grabbed the Dornishman behind the knee. The Red Viper brought down the greatsword in a wild slash, but he was off balance, and the edge did no more than put another dent in the mountain's vambrace. Then the sword was forgotten as Gregor's hand tightened and twisted, yanking the Dornishman down on top of him. They wrestled in the dust and blood, the broken spear wobbling back and forth. Tyrion saw with horror that the mountain had wrapped one huge arm around the prince, drawing him tight against his chest, like a lover. Elia of Dawn, they all heard Sir Gregor say, when they were close enough to kiss. His deep voice boomed within the helm. I killed a screaming whelp. He thrust his free hand into Oberyn's unprotected face, pushing steel fingers into his eyes. Then I raped her. Clegane slammed his fist into the Dornishman's mouth, making splinters of his teeth. Then I smashed her fucking head in, like this! (laughs) 
So, the death of Oberyn Martell and the mortal wounding of Gregor Clegane. One of the most gruesome and shocking moments in the books, and we hope that you like that reading. Now we're going to take a close look at the other person in the Robert Strong equation, Kyburn. When we first learn of Kyburn, it's in Clash. He's a part of the Brave Companions, led by Vargo Holt, who turn cloak against the Lannisters and then support the Bolton, and therefore Stark, cause at Harrenhal. The first thing we're told about the man is when Gendry describes the Brave Companions, also known as the Bloody Mummers. Half of them can't even speak the common tongue, except in Ut likes little boys, Kyburn does black magic, and your friend Biter eats people. So, right away, Kyburn is lumped in with a list of horrific characters just by his association with these bloody mummers. The mummers were a company of swords brought from Essos to Westeros by Tywin Lannister to wreak havoc. Vargo is another of the story's monsters, and as Gendry points out, Septon Ut is a paedophile and Biter, well, he bites people. While Art and Biter are of Westerosi origin, the Mummers' original Essosi contingent are just as scary. These are a real mixed bag of horrible men, opportunists and outcasts. The fact we hear that one of the Mummers does black magic is not much of a surprise. However, it is somewhat surprising when we learn more about Kyburn, and we soon get the sense that there's more to him than just being another monster of the Brave Companions. Here's an early description. Though he wore Maester's robes, there was no chain about his neck. It was whispered he had lost it for dabbling in necromancy. So, very intriguing. He's a shamed Maester. Ut was a shamed Septon, with his taste in little boys being deplorable. However, this early description of Kyburn as a necromancer creates more intrigue than disgust. Not only does he dress like a maester, but he also behaves like one too. He seems calm and mild-mannered, helps to leech ruse, deals with parchments, mail and messages, and even offers wise counsel. Yeah, and listen to this passage with ruse. I will hunt today, Roos Bolton announced, as Kyburn helped him into a quilted jerkin. Is it safe, my lord? Kyburn asked. Only three days past, Septon Ut's men were attacked by wolves. They came right into his camp, not five yards from the fire, and killed two horses. So Kyburn's being very polite and helpful, dressing Roos, and seems genuinely concerned that Roos might be putting himself in danger. In our brief glimpses of Kyburn in Clash the wretched company he keeps aside. We see him acting in the same manner as someone like Maester Lewin, a caring and considerate man bound to a sense of duty. Yet the reader can't ignore that he's riding with the mummers, and these mentions of his black magic and necromancy make us curious and cautious. And then we get into Storm, where we get another description of his appearance. It says in a Jamie point of view that he's a grey-haired, fatherly man. And then we get more descriptions, seeming to put him in a positive light. Cersei later thinks, Kyburn was old, but his hair still had more ash than snow in it, and the laugh lines around his mouth made him look like some little girl's favourite grandfather. And when Jamie is receiving treatment from the disgraced maester... He notes that 
Kyburn did not look a monster. He was spare and soft-spoken, with warm brown eyes. So, going by description, Kyburn kind of seems warm and likeable. As we'll discuss, Kyburn really is a monster, so it's interesting that George explicitly made him out to not look like one. And again, at this point in Storm, he does actually seem decent. This favourable perception of Kyburn is then given some depth by his treatment of Jamie's missing hand. Kyburn reveals himself to be a great healer, not only saving Jamie's life, but showing care and compassion in doing so. He tries to make the cutting away of corruption as pain-free as he could for Jamie, offering him milk of the poppy. He also leaves a flap of skin to fold over the wrist, clearly very skilled with the needle and catgut. But then Jamie brings about an interesting thought. He remarks that Kyburn must have done this before. So Kyburn says he got plenty of practice when he joined the Bloody Mummers. Vargo and co, as we saw with Jamie, had a pension for cutting off hands and feet. The question we're left with after further reading is if Kyburn genuinely wanted to heal people and so join the Mummers, or if he, on some sick level, enjoyed working with all that gore. Readers are left to make their own interpretation, but we suggest that those two are not mutually exclusive. Right. Carrying on through Storm, there are more examples of Kyburn showing genuine concern, once for a cut on Jamie's eye, and then he inquires if Jamie's stump is okay, giving him a flask of, quote, licorice steeped in vinegar with honey and cloves to give Jamie some strength and clear his head. He also gives Jamie dream wine when it's needed, and when he wakes from a dream in panic, Kyburn's there consoling Jamie. He's described with his fatherly face, all crinkly with concern. Like we said, this is what you'd expect from a good maester, really. But then he sends Pierre to Jamie for sex, which seems beyond the call of duty. Jamie asks, Do you send girls to everyone you leech? Before we learn that Kyburn's companionship was wearing on him. And finally, Jamie thinks that Kyburn's endless attempts to be ingratiating were beginning to fray his good humour. So, we've seen so far Kyburn framed as a decent guy, but Jamie, who's an honest and perceptive thinker, is seeing through the shamed maester. Kyburn's trying to please Jamie just too much. There's a falseness about it, and Jamie's picked up on it. He must know why Kyburn is looking after him so well, as Roos sent him on the journey to King's Landing to look after him and his wound. And Roos says this, He has a fond hope that your father will force the Citadel to give him back his chain in gratitude. So we know he wants his chain back, but come the end of Storm, we're not sure what was intended when George let us know he's a necromancer involved in dark magic. The appendix in Storm further confirms him as a necromancer, it states it plainly, and he's the only person named as such in the books aside from the others. This opens the door to Kyburn's supposed magical insights and abilities having the potential to greatly impact the story. But all we've seen so far is an over-friendly healer who looks like your favourite grandfather, What's not to like? 
What exactly did he do to lose his maester's chain? Well, on the journey back to the capital, we do get a hint. Jamie asks Kyburn if he believes in ghosts, and it says, The man's face grew strange. Once at the Citadel, I came into an empty room and saw an empty chair. Yet I knew a woman had been there, only a moment before. The cushion was dented where she'd sat. The cloth was still warm, and her scent lingered in the air. If we leave our smells behind us when we leave a room, surely something of our souls must remain when we leave this life. Kyburn spread his hands. The Archmaesters did not like my thinking, though. Well, Marwyn did, but he was the only one. Yeah, but we do get the sense that this curiosity alone can't have got him expelled from the Citadel. There must be more to the story. And at the end of Storm and into Feast, we see Kyburn come to King's Landing. As Roos has stated, Kyburn wants to get his maester's chain back. He's seeking a pardon from Tywin in light of his work on Jamie's hand. However, Tywin soon gets crossbowed leaving Kyburn a rather loose end. We've seen how friendly he can be to people who might be able to empower him somehow, and now it's Cersei in charge. So, the first time Kyburn is introduced to Cersei, Tywin has just been found dead. Cersei's looking for someone to remove the quarrels from her father's belly and prepare him for the Silent Sisters. She's in a panic and needs someone. When Kyburn is brought to her, it's noted that he bows low. He's humbling himself, as he did with Jamie. Where Jamie saw through Kyburn's attempts to ingratiate himself, the reader might suspect that he'll fare better with Cersei. She's a vain woman with few scruples and might better receive Kyburn's brand of friendliness. All he needs to do is make himself useful to her. However, Cersei is suspicious of Kyburn at first and takes some time to weigh him up. She's been around flatterers, sycophants and so on before and not always fallen for certain charms, the best example being Pycelle. But now the Grand Maester is grating on her, he doesn't seem useful to her given his age. Pycelle really opens up this opportunity for Kyburn because he went to send a message to the Silent Sisters, rather than tending to the corpse of Tywin himself, which really, really angers Cersei, given she feels that she was sent for last. The first thing she thinks with Kyburn is to compare him to Pycelle. It says, His face was vaguely familiar, though Cersei could not place him. Old but not so old as Pycelle. This one had some strength in him still. Okay, so Kyburn versus Pycelle, something which keeps popping up throughout A Feast for Crows. In Cersei's time of need, Kyburn scores points. He's graceful when she threatens him, and his lack of a chain doesn't seem to bother her. He also suggests the cover story for Tywin being found with Shay, that Tywin was simply questioning her, and it says... Cersei seized on the suggestion eagerly. So, the first hint there that Kyburn could be useful to Cersei beyond his abilities to heal, this was wise counsel, and Kyburn now finds himself in a position of great trust. And then Cersei enlists Kyburn's help in making inquiries about Tywin's death and the disappearance of Tyrion, remembering she now sees the imp as her nemesis and her valenquois. 
This is another opportunity for Kyburn to endear himself to Cersei, and soon we get that description of him as some little girl's favourite grandfather, with laughter lines all around his mouth. She obviously seems to be warming to him. Then Kyburn finds a Tyrell coin in the black cells, and it's noted the cells are often empty. The coin was likely placed by Varys, posing as the jailer Rugen, but it feeds Cersei's paranoia about the Tyrells and ups her agenda against them, so again she's grateful to Kyburn. This shows more potential for him to be a man of many uses, and sets him up to be Master of Whisperers later on. He lets Cersei know he can keep his mouth shut, or else how did he survive with the bloody mummers, and he shows his skills as a maester. He's treating Gregor now, and surmises that Oberyn's poison was thickened with dark magic. This shows that he must have an understanding of magic, and for a flash, Cersei wonders if he is as big a fool as Pycelle. And when Cersei says it's time to hand Gregor to Ilim Payne to be put out of his agony, this is where we get huge insights about what Kyburn really wants. Yeah, he knows the black cells are largely unused now and says, Mayhaps I might move Sir Gregor to the dungeons? His screams will not disturb you there and I will be able to tend to him more freely. He then goes on to calmly argue that to combat the black arts, you need to understand them. He gives Cersei one of his nice smiles, and she realizes that Kyburn is most definitely not like Pycelle. As she weighs up his request, Cersei asks him to explain why he lost his chain, and we get this. The archmaesters are all craven at heart. The grey sheep, Marwyn calls them. I was as skilled a healer as Ebrose, but aspired to surpass him. For hundreds of years the men of the Citadel have opened the bodies of the dead to study the nature of life. I wish to understand the nature of death, so I open the bodies of the living. For that crime the grey sheep shamed me and forced me into exile. But I understand the nature of life and death better than any man in Old Town. So, a pretty creepy explanation there of why Kyburn was forced to leave the Citadel. And this talk of the Black Arts and understanding life and death must have been appealing to someone who was struggling with a prophecy made against her by a witch. So Cersei agrees to let Kyburn do his studies in the Black Cells. He even requests gold for equipment, which he's granted. The only condition is that he keep all this quiet, to which he replies with a reassuring smile, your secrets are safe with me, which is exactly what the insecure and paranoid Cersei needs to hear at this point. So Kyburn is increasingly giving the impression he's a kind of mad scientist. He's quite honest, seems trustworthy, and was very smart in manoeuvring to get a laboratory set up in the Black Cells. His story about losing his chain gives him depth as a man who wanted to further his knowledge of the world, but the fact he seems to dabble in dark arts and has an overly keen interest in the dead makes the reader even more curious about him. 
and Cersei giving him what he wanted, the ability to carry out dodgy experiments on a dying man, only strengthens their bond. She makes him master of whisperers when Varys flees, defends him when Jaime shows his revulsion, and at one point takes his arm as they walk together. They make quite a funny pair. And as he serves her well, she's more inclined to give in to his requests. Hey, Kyburn is now in a great position. He just has to stay loyal to the woman who's empowered him, and he can continue with his dark experiments. But he's seeking more subjects. First of all, there's Sinel, who was a serving maid to Cersei. Taina Merriweather informed Cersei that Sinel was a Tyrell spy. And so, Sinel meets a fate you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. She gets sent to Kyburn. Yeah, and all we get to hear about Sinel after that is that the poor girl is quite exhausted. And the fact what Kyburn's been doing to her is left to our imagination makes it even more bone-chilling. There's something very creepy about Kyburn's way of understating his horrors. And because Sinel is spent, he requests two puppeteers for his own purposes. He had heard of a puppet show where dragons devour lions, and he really orchestrated this conversation to get what he wanted, which is more girls for his experiments. Yeah, if you think about it, he used his position as Master of Whisperers to find women who he knew Cersei would donate to him. He is certainly very clever and not without some scheming abilities. And later on, we see another woman sent to Kyburn's basement lab. Cersei plotted to have Bronn killed by Felice Stokeworth and her husband, which because it's Cersei, unsurprisingly went wrong, and Felice is simply talking about it too much. Cersei wants her silenced, and says, Sweet Felice, Maester Kyburn's here. He'll help you rest. The naive Felice, who has no clue what she's just been set up for, replies, Oh, oh good. <laughs> so... Kyburn has shown skills as a healer, he gives counsel, he's a competent master of whispers, he's loyal, and now we see another use. He can make troublesome people disappear, and he doesn't flinch at torturing people. And sometime later, when Cersei inquires about poor Felice, Kyburn says that she's alive, yes, perhaps not entirely comfortable. Oh, more creepiness. Then Kyburn goes on and it gets even more chilling. He says very calmly, I fear that Lady Felice is no longer capable of ruling Stokeworth, or indeed of feeding herself. I have learned a great deal from her, I am pleased to say, but the lessons have not been entirely without cost. I hope I have not exceeded your grace's instructions. And that has to be one of the most disturbing lines in the books. What the heck has Kyburn done to Felice that she now can't feed herself? Again, leaving the details to our imaginations is a really effective tactic employed by George for upping the sense of horror. And this is paired with 
Kyburn's politeness about the whole thing. Yeah, that one really gives me the shivers. By now, Kyburn has well and truly cemented his place alongside Cersei, and Pycelle is left lagging behind. Quite literally at one point, it says, Kyburn strolled along beside her. Pycelle had to struggle to keep up. But Kyburn finally ousts Pycelle as Cersei's alley when both men are approached to give counsel about the Valonqar prophecy that's haunted her since childhood. Pycelle thinks about prophecy and answers, rather, philosophically, should our morrows be foretold? To that I should answer, no, some doors are best left closed. And this confirms to Cersei that he is of no use whatsoever. (laughs) However, Kyburn has a different outlook and tells Cersei exactly what she wants to hear. He says that the prophecy can be forestalled without doubt. So, Cersei's choosing of Kyburn as an ally and rejection of Pycelle is significant. Pycelle represented caution. He warns her on several matters, including the potential threat of the Faith Militant, which later comes back to haunt her in a big way. In choosing Kyburn, she opts for an ally that represents risk, playing outside the rules, and unscrupulous behavior. And this all ties in with Cersei's arc and feast, where she's really spiraling out of control and heading for trouble. And trouble soon comes. When she asks Kyburn how the prophecy can be forestalled, he replies that Cersei already knows how, implying that the death of Marjorie might be the answer. This feeds Cersei's desire to see Marjorie meet an end, and soon it's time to put Kyburn's fondness for torture to good use, as he's expected to force a confession from the Blue Bard. We'll have a reading of this really grim scene later, but Kyburn pulls no punches. We get vivid descriptions of him cutting a nipple off with the razor, and it says that... By dawn, the singer's high blue boots were full of blood. So, that is a really disturbing and graphic scene. It's the closest we get to actually seeing what Kyburn is capable of down in the black cells where no one can hear you scream. The violence is so grim that Cersei ends up feeling ill, and yet Kyburn seems to remain calm and perfectly at home inflicting such damage onto a human being. The readers left to reflect on what horrors Kyburn brought to Senel, Felice, and the two puppeteers. Later in Dance, Cersei herself reflects that Lord Kyburn could do wonders, and horrors. He can do horrors as well. Yeah, she now knows that better than almost anyone. And things soon take a dramatic turn as Cersei is imprisoned. Her desire to see Marjorie's downfall has actually facilitated her own. With his enabler locked away in a cell, Kyburn is removed from the small council, although he's allowed to continue his work with the eunuch's whisperers. It's now that we see just how much Kyburn means to Cersei when he pays a visit to her. It says, It was near dawn on the second day and Cersei was licking the last of the porridge from the bottom of the bowl when her cell door swung open unexpectedly to admit Lord Kyburn. It was all she could do not to throw herself at him. Kyburn, she whispered. Oh, gods, I am so glad to see your face. Take me home. 
And although Kyburn can't take her home, he's the one person who can offer her what she really needs at that moment, hope. And it looks like her despicable policy of allowing Kyburn to conduct his experiments pays dividends as he promises to supply her with a champion who no man can hope to stand against. We'll be looking at Robert Strong in the next segment. So in Feast, Kyburn becomes a far more important character. And this is set against Cersei's descent into an out-of-control figure of wavering power. Her association with Kyburn helps to portray how unhinged she's become. A lot can be said for the company a character keeps. And through the torture of the Blue Bard and allusions to disgusting experiments on living people, Kyburn is now truly established as a horror character. Yeah, he is, and one with depth and complexity. We've seen in the last segment how George has written Gregor as a fairly straightforward monster, a very large and powerful man using his size to commit all manner of atrocities. However, Kyburn is far more complex and interesting. Here's a monster who has a deep philosophy of some kind, is a passion for learning, looks gentle and harmless, is polite and very human. Yeah, he is very polite. Yet beneath the veneer is a man capable of evils every bit as bad as Gregor's roast goat, for example. In some ways, it's Kyburn's ability to seem quite normal, caring and ultra-polite that make the character all the more terrifying. And it's very clear in Feast that what really drives him more than anything is his desire to conduct his brand of science. And so his relationship with Cersei is of mutual benefit, as we saw. Kyburn's loyalty lies to the person who let him continue his studies in his quest to understand death and in his own way better the knowledge kept by Maester Ebrose. It's little wonder he was stripped of his maester's chain and expelled from the citadel. And writing him as a healer is also very interesting. Kyburn is essentially a mad scientist or a doctor gone wrong. This plays on a basic fear that the people we need to trust the most, like doctors, might use their powers in horrific ways. And doctors are actually a popular choice for horror antagonists. There's the classic Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's Dr. Moreau from H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau. The disturbing psychiatrist, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And the more recent trash horror flick, Human Centipede, as examples of how doctors can bring terror to people. Yeah, and just imagine the horror if Kyburn teamed up with the character we looked at at the start of the episode, Gregor, and one of them was undead. What a pair they would make. On the subject of comparisons to film and literature, there's a clear nod to another classic, Dr. Frankenstein, which sets up our discussion on Robert Strong. But first of all, it's time for a reading, and it's a suitably grim one. Here's the torture of the Blue Bard at the behest of Cersei Lannister and at the hands of our friend Kyburn. Down here in the dungeons, Kyburn wore rough spun wool and a blacksmith's leather apron. 
To the blue bard, he said, I am sorry if the guards were rough with you. Their courtesies are sadly lacking. His voice was kind, solicitous. All we want from you is the truth. I've told you the truth, the singer sobbed. Iron shackles held him hard against the cold stone wall. We know better. Kyburn had a razor in his hand, its edge gleaming faintly in the torchlight. He cut away the blue bard's clothing until the man was naked but for his high blue boots. Tell us how you pleasured the little queen. I never, I sang was all, I sang and played. Her ladies will tell you, they were always with us, her cousins. How many of them did you have carnal knowledge of? None of them. I'm just a singer. Please. Kyburn said, Mayhaps you only played for Marjorie whilst she entertained other lovers. No, please, she never. I sang. I only sang. Lord Kyburn ran a hand up the bluebard's chest. Does she take your nipples in her mouth during your love play? He took one between his thumb and forefinger and twisted. Some men enjoy that. Their nipples are as sensitive as a woman's. The razor flashed. The singer shrieked. On his chest, a wet red eye wept blood. In the end, the blue bard told his whole life back to his first name day. His father had been a chandler, and Watt was raised to that trade, but as a boy he found he had more skill at making lutes than barrels. When he was twelve, he ran off to join a troupe of musicians he had heard performing at a fair. He had wandered half the reach before coming to King's Landing in hopes of finding favor at court. Favor? Kyburn chuckled. Is that what women call it now? I fear you found too much of it, my friend, and from the wrong queen. And that was Kyburn trying to make the blue bard confess to sleeping with Marjorie. An horrific moment from A Feast for Crows. There we see a classic example of Kyburn's pension for manners and politeness mixed with his capacity to commit horrors. As we said, it's this unusual mix which make him so very creepy and such an interesting villain. Yeah, he actually apologises to the Blue Bard about the guards being discourteous before cutting off his nipple. Anyway, now let's move on. We've looked at Gregor and Kyburn so far, and it's abundantly clear both of these characters are monsters in their own right. However, with the unveiling of Robert Strong in A Dance with Dragons, we're made to think about these two in combination. So now we're going to look at Robert Strong, starting with what became of Gregor, and we'll go on to look at all the possibilities and all evidence we could find for what Robert Strong actually is. Then we'll look at what the future might have in store for the silent giant. Okay, so first let's look at what happened with Gregor. It seems like the theory that he has been reborn as Robert Strong is one of the strongest and most likely theories in the fandom. So let's go back to the fight with Oberyn. Remember this observation from Tyrion when Oberyn is preparing for the showdown. He notes, When Oberyn spun the shaft between the palms of his hand, they glistened black. Oil or poison? And then there's the assertion that Oberyn wants to tickle Gregor. Large hints that the Prince of Dorne was determined to get poison into the bloodstream of the big man. 
Despite his eventual loss, Oberyn leaves Gregor in a really bad way. It says four feet of broken spear jutted from Clegane's belly, so Gregor's in seriously bad shape and needs urgent attention. And in Feast, we hear of how he's doing. He's the passage between Kyburn and Cersei. I have examined him as you commanded. The poison on the viper's spear was manticore venom from the east. I would stake my life on that. Pycelle says no. He told my lord father that manticore venom kills the instant it reaches the heart. And so it does. But this venom has been thickened somehow, so as to draw out the mountains dying. Thickened? Thickened how? With some other substance? It may be as your grace suggests, though in most cases adulterating a poison only lessens its potency. It may be that the cause is less natural, let us say. A spell, I think. And then we get this from Kyburn. He's dying of the venom, but slowly and in exquisite agony. My efforts to ease his pain have proved as fruitless as Pycelle's. Sir Gregor is overly accustomed to the poppy, I fear. His squire tells me that he is plagued by blinding headaches and oft quaffs the milk of the poppy as lesser men quaff ale. Be that as it may, his veins have turned black from head to heel, his water is clouded with pus, and the venom has eaten a hole in his side as large as my fist. It's a wonder that the man is still alive, if truth be told. So, confirmation that the oil Tyrion mentioned was in fact poison, and that Gregor is dying in exquisite agony. This is where Cersei wants to kill him, but Kyburn's playing his little game and gets the nod to take him to the black cells where his screams of agony won't be heard, remembering he seems to have built up an immunity to Milk of the Poppy. This is also where, with great timing, Kyburn confesses to wanting to open the bodies of the living to understand death. Soon Cersei checks in on her order that might or might not have been to remove Gregor's head. And we'll look at that and the dwarf's heads later. We're told that Gregor has died via Orain Waters in the small council meeting where Cersei announces the delivery of a head to Dorne. And further into A Feast for Crows, we get the first hints at Kyburn's great experiment. Aside from Kyburn requesting females for his dungeon, which we assume was part of the Robert Strong procedure, somehow taking life force and blood from the women and using it for Strong, we get this interesting passage between Cersei and Kyburn. And it's even before Cersei's locked up. Here's the passage. Should Sir Loras fall, your grace will need to find another worthy for the king's guard, Lord Kyburn said as they crossed over the spiked moat that girded Maker's Holdfast. Someone splendid, she agreed. Someone so young and swift and strong that Tommen will forget all about Sir Loras. A bit of gallantry would not be amiss, but his head should not be full of foolish notions. Do you know of such a man? Alas, no, said Kyburn. I had another sort of champion in mind. What he lacks in gallantry, he will give you tenfold in devotion. He will protect your son, kill your enemies, and keep your secrets. And no living man will be able to withstand him. So you say, words are wind. When the hour is ripe, you may produce this paragon of yours, and we will see if he is all that you have promised. They will sing of him, I swear it. 
So Kaiban thinks no living man will be able to withstand him. And at this stage, we don't know who or what he's talking about. Promises to protect her son, kill her enemies. This is all very appealing to Cersei. But she's not entirely convinced just yet. Yeah, Kyburn discusses some armor he's had Cersei order, obviously custom-built. It's so large that the armorer thinks she's mad. It's apparently so large that, quote, no man is strong enough to move and fight in such a weight of plate. And this is a large clue that Gregor Clegane's part in this story is not yet done. Remember, Tyrion said, his armor is so heavy that no lesser man could bear the weight, let alone move in it. Okay, so Kyburn's unnamed champion is already a great fit for Gregor, quite literally. But Cersei is suspicious of Kyburn's project and warns him that if he plays her for a fool, that he'll die screaming. However, it looks like Cersei's prepared to gamble with Kyburn here. The line, when the hour is ripe, you may produce this paragon of yours, indicates she was lining up a takedown of Marjorie with accusations of treason. She would then name Kyburn's paragon against Marjorie's champion to ensure the victory, and in her mind at least, the cancellation of the Valenquois prophecy. But, as we know, things soon take a turn for Cersei and her schemes against Marjorie backfire. She's incarcerated for the crimes of murder, treason, and fornication, and she soon realizes her best hope is a trial by combat. When Kyburn visits her cell, she confesses that she's lost. But Kyburn offers her hope. He says, Hope remains. Your grace has the right to prove your innocence by battle. My queen, your champion, stands ready. There is no man in all the seven kingdoms who can hope to stand against him, if you will only give the command. However, there's a problem with the champion. He's not a king's guard and therefore can't fight for Cersei, with there being no room in the king's guard for another member. She's so upset that she laughs, seeing the humour in her dire predicament. I have a champion no man can defeat, but I am forbidden to make use of him. I am the Queen Kyburn. My honour can only be defended by a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. And Kyburn's smile dies, and we sense by now how eager he is to unleash his experiment onto the world, and Cersei now requests that Jamie be her champion. Of course, Jamie ignores her letter, and that's it for Feast. Ain't dance, Cersei's in the same predicament until she gets a visit from her uncle Kevin, who tells her of the death of the Kingsguard Aerys Oakheart. Now there's a vacancy in the Kingsguard for her champion that no man can stand against, and she tells Kevin there's a new Kingsguard waiting to go. When Kevin asks who, Cersei thinks he'll need a new name as well as a new face, and says, Kyburn will know. Trust him in this. You and I have had our differences, uncle, but for the blood we share and the love you bore my father, for Tommen's sake and the sake of his poor maimed sister, do as I ask you. Go to Lord Kyburn on my behalf, bring him a white cloak, and tell him that the time has come. Mm, and now Cersei undergoes her walk of shame to get back to the Red Keep. At the end of her traumatic ordeal, we finally get to see Sir Robert Strong. Here's the description. Her saviour was real, 
eight feet tall or maybe taller, with legs as thick around as trees. He had a chest worthy of a plough horse and shoulders that would not disgrace an ox. His armour was plate steel, enamelled white and bright as maiden's hopes, and worn over gilded mail. A great helm hid his face. From its crest streamed seven silken plumes in the rainbow colours of the faith. A pair of golden seven-pointed stars clasped his billowing cloak at the shoulders. So, eight feet tall, and the description of his body matches Gregor perfectly. Circe is told the giant has taken a vow of silence, and that, quote, he has sworn that he will not speak until all of his grace's enemies are dead and evil has been driven from the realm. And of course, Circe is very pleased that Kyburn kept his word, and all his promises of a supreme champion have come to fruition. And into the dance epilogue, Randall Tully names Robert Strong the Silent Giant. Mace Terrell voices his concern. Why have we never heard his name before? He does not speak. He will not show his face. He is never seen without his armour. Do we know for a certainty that he is even a knight? And Kevin thinks to himself, we don't even know if he's alive. And then there's more creepiness. We're told Robert Strong not only doesn't speak, but he doesn't eat or drink either, and hence doesn't use the toilet. As Kevin ponders to himself, dead men don't shit. And Kevin thinks he knows who Robert Strong is under the armor, and he suspects Mason Randall know too, but, quote, whatever the face hidden behind Strong's helm, it must remain hidden for now. The silent giant was his niece's only hope and pray that he is as formidable as he appears. And these lines from Kevin really set up the winds of winter so well. There's the question about how formidable the giant actually is, considering the upcoming trial by combat. And he also wonders about what face is behind the helm. And these are questions we'll be covering and speculating about next. For hundreds of years, the men of the Citadel have opened the bodies of the dead to study the nature of life. I wish to understand the nature of death, so I open the bodies of the living. Okay, so we've gone through what we know of Gregor's apparent transformation in the books, from a poisoned mountain to a silent giant suspiciously not using the privy. Given Kevin's and the reader's suspicions that Sir Robert Strong is actually dead, paired with the naming of Kyburn as a black magic performing necromancer in the text and also in the appendices, everything seems to fit. Yeah, it does. And now we want to consider what the heck is under his helm and just what this very curious and unusual character is all about. Although we presented Robert Strong's journey as beginning when Gregor was mortally wounded, we think we first see Robert Strong a lot earlier on in game. Right, and it's in Bran's coma dream with the three-eyed crow. Here's the passage. There were shadows all around them. One shadow was dark as ash, with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armoured like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant in armour made of stone, 
but when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. So as lots of other people do, we think this giant is Robert Strong. There are some theories that it might be someone like Littlefinger, but here's why we're so confident that it is in fact Strong. Let's break the quote down to see how he fits. Okay, so it starts, over them both loomed a giant. And so Robert Strong is obviously a giant. He's almost eight feet tall and is soon nicknamed the Silent Giant. And then next it says the giant is in armor. So this giant's armor is brought to attention in Bran's dream. Remember, Robert Strong has very distinctive white enamel armor that's too big for any man and never seems to take it off. And in Bran's dream, this armor is made of stone. Okay, so this nods to Strong being the mountain, as mountains are made of stone. Plus, Gregor fights with a stone fist on his helm. Next, it says, when he opened his visor, indicating a mystery to what's behind this giant's visor. And this reminds us of Kevin's thought and dance. Whatever the face hidden behind Strong's helm, it must remain hidden for now. And next it says, behind the giant's visor was nothing but thick black blood. Nothing behind the visor fits very well with the notion that his head might have been replaced, which we'll look at later. The thick black blood again fits Robert Strong perfectly. For the thick, remember Oberyn thickened black poison in their duel. And later on, we're told that Gregor's veins have turned black from head to heel. So yeah, thick black blood is perfect. Overall, this seems, to us at least, a very snug fit. We think you have to do a lot of stretching with the interpretations to fit other contenders, whereas this seems to be a great match for Robert Strong with no need to shoehorn. Anyway, if this is Strong, seen so early in game, we think it marks him as a character of great significance, that George would include him in that coma dream like this. And the fact that he's looming over two characters specifically might be ominous for them and might indicate a future showdown. We think the two characters are Jamie and Sandor, who kind of both fit this notion of a potential showdown. Robert Strong seems to be Cersei's creature, or Kyburn's, but Cersei's by extension. And we've seen later in their arcs that Jamie and Cersei are increasingly at odds after the early twincest loving. So there's your potential showdown. And I don't think we need to point out to this fandom there's unfinished business between Sandor and Gregor. Again, we think Robert Strong is looming over both of them and that could possibly mean bad news. Okay, so if it's Robert Strong in that dream, it could be highly significant and dispel any notion that Strong will be a bit part or a disposable oddity. But let's look at his head and the theories surrounding that. There's basically four main theories about Robert Strong's head, which we'll assess. First of all, there's the idea that Strong simply doesn't have a head, and this is people taking the coma dream literally, that there's nothing behind the visor. And we think this one is actually quite easy to cast aside. 
Robert Strong must have a head, or else how does he wear a presumably large and very heavy great helm that's mentioned in Kevin's POV? So we think that's a fatal flaw to that idea, and the nothing behind the visor from the coma dream was more an indication that his head could have been replaced, re-headed by magic and Kyburn's dark sorcery and science. Alright, and now let's look at the possibility that he has his original head. Dorne called for the head of Sir Gregor Clegane after his public confession that he raped and murdered Ilya Martell. A large skull was sent to Dorne, but the reader's left to wonder if there hasn't been a switcheroo because of Cersei's call for dwarf's heads. Yeah, and in the hope of bringing an end to her nemesis, at least in her eyes, Cersei makes heads roll in a kingdom-wide dwarf dragnet. We see the head of someone who appears to be the pious dwarf that Brienne met arrive to Cersei for inspection. Very soon after, Cersei asks Kyburn, Have you attended to that little task I set you? And he replies, I have your grace. I am sorry that it took so long. Such a large head. It took the beetles many hours to clean the flesh. By way of pardon, I have lined a box of ebony and silver with felt to make a fitting presentation for the skull. So there's a common misconception in the fandom here that Cersei had only just received a dwarf's head and so couldn't have done the switcheroo. Kyburn has a large head all prepared and we've only just got the dwarf's head. However... Cersei says that this one is the third head she's received. She notes that she's previously been brought two more, that one belonged to a child, and so we guess the other was also a dwarf's head. She has received a dwarf's head before. And also working in favour of this idea is an observation from our previous guest, Ragnarok. He pointed out that the head given to Dawn was cleaned, as Kyburn points out, by beetles. However, Pycelle noted that not even maggots would go near Gregor because of the poison blood creating, as he put it, such a foulness. It's also noted that any leeches that touch Gregor died. So how would beetles clean a head that killed leeches and not even maggots would touch? We think this is a really great observation, and we've never seen it before. Yes, that is a very interesting observation. Okay, so it seems possible that Gregor still has his own head, and that the skull sent to Dorne wasn't actually his. First of all, Tyrion's head is noted as being large, so we guess in George's world at least, a dwarf skull could pass as Gregor's. And it's worth mentioning that in many cases of real-life dwarfism, a genetic abnormality causes an individual's head to be disproportionately large, among other things. So it could be that dwarfs' heads in Westeros are meant to mimic this type of condition. But there's also some mentions, allusions, and nods to Gregor's or Robert Strong's head being taken off in the text. So let's look now at the case for Robert Strong having a dwarf's head. First, there's the coma dream, which, as we said, could be a nod to Gregor having been decapitated at some point. Then, still in game, this Catelyn in the Vale. An interesting potential foreshadowing that we found is the quote, 
Looming over them all was the jagged peak called the Giant's Lance, a mountain that even mountains looked up to, its head lost in icy mists. So, the Giant's Lance, a mountain that mountains look up to, and its head is lost. And notice the words looming over them, which is the wording of the coma dream, so very interesting there. Next, there's also the repeated notion of people wanting to take Gregor's head, such as Beric Dondarrion wanting to, quote, lop the summit off our mountain. And in Beric's trial by combat with Sandor, a dog on the Clegane sigil that's painted on a shield, quote, lost a head in the fight. So, given that we consider Robert Strong having no head is debunked, we think all of these nods to Gregor being headless work in favour of the idea that his head was removed and replaced with something else. Given the convenient stream of dwarf's heads into Kyburn's clutches at just the right time, a dwarf's head for Robert Strong seems like a decent possibility. To be fair, all this foreshadowing could be for something that has yet to happen, so it doesn't actually rule out the possibility that Gregor still has his own head, but we think that Gregor with a dwarf's head might fit the freakishness of this character, and that George might go for it. When you think of the reveal of Strong's visor, it might be the kind of horror that George is aiming at. That feeling of a kind of Frankenstein's monster, a mad scientist who's created a true freak, perhaps using a stray head and the life force of those poor women in Kyburn's basement laboratory. And speaking of Frankenstein's monster, at eight feet tall, he happens to be the same height as Robert Strong, so perhaps a nod there. And to be clear, there's a lot of differences between the monster and Strong, we don't anticipate too many parallels beyond the making a monster slash science con wrong theme. Although the monster turning on his creator and the people who surround him might be an interesting twist and a suitably horrific device that George could employ. Okay, and just because it's fun, we do have one further possibility that would definitely be horrific. It's our outsider bonus choice that Robert Strong has the head of Rob Stark. So let's look at this idea. Okay, yeah. Now, this notion is generally considered a long shot, but we researched it in case we could find anything that hasn't been picked up by the fandom. And in game, we found this. Rob is with Catelyn before the Battle of Whispering Wood. Remember in the coma dream, the giant has black blood behind his visor? Well, here we get this passage. It was dark among the trees, where the moon did not reach. When Rob turned his head to look at her, she could see only black inside his visor. Hmm, so that sounds similar to the coma dream. And that's all it took. It was enough to get us interested. So let's look at this. In the aftermath of the Red Wedding, where Rob was beheaded, Joffrey is with the small council and says this. I want Rob Stark's head too. Write to Lord Frey and tell him. The king commands. I'm going to have it served to Sansa at my wedding feast. And then he says, He was a traitor and I want his stupid head. I'm going to make Sansa kiss it. 
Okay, so Joffrey is shouting about royal orders and being delivered Rob's head. And this small council meeting, Tywin was there to exert his authority, so it doesn't seem like people were really listening to Joff. But we guess it's just possible that he continued barking his royal orders off page. And just as we saw with Cersei and the dwarfs, there would no doubt have been people rushing the head straight to him. Rob Stark's head could have been sent for and arrived in King's Landing after Joffrey died, and Kyburn could have gotten his hands on it. So the big plus for this idea is that it would be so gruesome, absolutely shocking for the reader, and would bring into question the theme of identity that George likes to toy with. Just imagine this monster with Rob's head, or even just his face etched on. It would certainly be the right level of horror for Kyburn's creation. However, on the flip side, the biggest problem here is with the timeline and logistics. So yeah, the timeline. Rob lost his head in the final month of 299. Joffrey was shouting about wanting Rob Stark's head within days, but we think it's a full three months later that Kyburn would be theoretically messing with Rob's head and Gregor. So the only way we see this one working is if Rob's head was pickled or preserved, as we saw with Maester Aemon's body, and sent to King's Landing. But if the head was too small, it could be possible that Kyburn just used the face, etched on in a style similar to the faceless men. This would mean that Gregor had his original head, but Kyburn used a face at his disposal to disguise that fact. And later, Cersei notes... My champion will need a new name as well as a new face. Anyway, there's some options so you listeners can make up your own minds on who or what will be behind Robert Strong's visor. I think we all hope that there'll be some shock and horror both in universe and for the reader. And the next question is, what is Strong's purpose in the story and what will he end up doing? Well, we think he'll be very important. First up is Cersei's trial by combat, and we just can't see him losing this one. George has brought in a very out-of-place character, using a different kind of magic than we might have seen before. We don't see all that effort going into the creation of Robert Strong, just to have him defeat it so early. He's very likely an undead version of a character who at times seemed impossible to kill, and we don't think Kyburn's assertion that no man can stand against him should be taken lightly. Yes, it's bad news for whoever has to face him in the trial by combat, we think. And we firmly believe that he won't be facing Sandor in that trial, or Cleganebowl as it's known in the fandom. If Sandor is a gravedigger, he's still wounded and recovering, and aside from everything else... We don't think there's time to set him up for the trial, which is imminent at the start of wins. So other contenders to face strong include Lancer Lannister, which would be quite an amusing mismatch, and Theodan the True, the commander of the Warrior Sons. But while we say no to Clegane Bowl at the trial, we think there's a real possibility that Sandor and Ungregor could face off sometime in the future, although quite how that might happen is anyone's guess. 
But again, we put some stock in the fact that Sandor and Gregor seem to have unfinished business, and in the aforementioned coma dream, that it might have been Robert Strong looming over both Sandor and Jamie Lannister. And as for Strong's wider role, Kevin wonders if he's as formidable as he seems. If so, Cersei might just have a supernatural ally that, as Kyburn promised, will not stop until all her enemies are dead. Strong might be so formidable and so near invincible that he could single-handedly tip the balance of power in King's Landing. Cersei's enemies beware, Kyburn has a surprise for you all, but let's not forget that such experiments in science can eventually, and perhaps in this case inevitably, all go horribly wrong. In a sense, Kyburn's done wonders in creating Robert Strong, but to paraphrase Cersei, he's also done horrors too. And before we go today, here's an advert from Kyburn. Hello, this is Kyburn speaking. Have you lost hope? Can't seem to find your place. Is life holding no meaning for you? Then please consider donating yourself to a rather worthy and noble cause. Give yourself to me and you give yourself to science, the attempt to further our understanding of life and death. I know more about life and death than any man at the Citadel, but must learn more. However, such knowledge comes at a cost, and to understand death, we must open the bodies of the living. I urge you to be that cost, and to die not only screaming, but for the greater good. Females are my preference, and do understand, I'll be there for you when you're no longer able to feed yourself. My former subjects found themselves quite exhausted. Come to my laboratory in the black cells, where I have a comfortable bed waiting. And there's no need to worry, I look like your favourite grandfather and have impeccable manners at all times. Do something with your life at Kyburn's Laboratory. And that was our look at Gregor Clegane, Kyburn and Robert Strong. Thanks so much for listening. We can't tell you for sure what's next because we're working on a couple of things right now, but it's likely a look at either Jorah Mormont or Littlefinger, so we hope you'll come back for that. Now, as usual, it's time to give credit where credit is due. So thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us horror along with our fantasy in the form of characters like Kyburn and Sir Gregor Clegane. Into Nine Inch Nails and Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use elements of their music. Full details are on the MP3 tag. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Looking for a new podcast to listen to? Here's what we love, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. You need to watch the reality. It should make you uncomfortable. Police officer shot and killed a black woman in her own incident home. Incident after incident, year after year. Hands up! Don't shoot! 
Say Their Name, a podcast that focuses on the assault and killing of unarmed Black people by police and in stand-your-ground states. What happens when the hashtag stops, yet the community remains? I'm the mother, father, sister, uncle, grandmother. This was a person who was our friend, our colleague, just the opposite of anyone you'd feel you need to defend yourself from. Please listen and subscribe to this and other DCP shows at dcpofficial.com on Apple, Spotify, Google, Pandora, or wherever you get your shows. A cash recommends. <laughs>